opportunity for some discussion, questions, answers. If anybody is in discomfort, you'd like to sit at the back. There's uh, some, still some chairs there at the back if someone would like to change posture. So does anybody have anything they would like to talk about, ask, tell me, teach me? Yeah. I had one issue come up recently, and this was uh, Vajrayana teaching of, um, they were saying that if in Theravada, if you have sense desire, you try to, you're afraid of it. So you try to renounce your desire. But in Vajrayana, the, instead of being afraid of desire, they take the desire and they transform it. And therefore, uh, you shouldn't give up um, you know, drugs, you shouldn't give up sex, you shouldn't give up alcohol. And instead, you should engage in those things. And by engaging in them, you're transforming your desire uh, and thereby, um, this is Dharma that is, they call the third turning of the wheel. The first turning was appropriate in that age, but in this age, the third turning of the wheel is more appropriate. And therefore, you should drink alcohol so long as you're not in, you're not controlled by it. Ah. Mm. So, uh, I sat very quietly while I was listening to this. But this is a lay teacher. Yes, yeah, this is what they teach them. Yeah, yeah um, I don't think, I don't think um, monks teach them. Vajrayana monks don't teach them. Well, I thought too that, the, yeah. you know, the monks wouldn't be teaching or doing that either. I mean, they have tantric sex and things like this, or they have Chokram Rinpoche, who was always drunk, but... Oh, he was disrobed. Mm -hmm. Right. This was a lay teacher teaching for lay people too. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's, um, that's like we're the small vehicle. I mean, we, <laughs> people always are more attracted to that kind of teaching. Um, well, um, many years ago, as I, as I recall, there was a meeting at Dhamsala uh, with um, monks of all the different traditions, and there have been a number of very damaging um, scandals in Tibetan Buddhist communities in America, and um, <clears throat> you know this uh, this topic was brought up, and um, and I, I I can't recall exactly, but it's, it's something like um, the, the Dalai Lama um, said, you know, the teachers say that these tantric sexual practices, you know, are available to someone who can have. The same, uh, the same feeling um, with uh, having sex and eating excrement. And he said, is there anybody, he asked all the Tibetan monks, you know, are any of you at that level yet? And, and none of them would li lifted their hands. So, um, yeah, there, there, I mean, there are different, um, I, you know, I don't, I don't want to denigrate this particular teacher because I, you know, I don't know um, his own understanding, and I certainly I, I am, and I don't agree. And um, I was 
speaking a little bit about faith um, just now, and I put my faith in in the the Lord Buddha um, and the teachings found in the Pali Canon and in my teachers, um, enlightened teachers in in this tradition. And um, uh, I don't know whether it's possible for someone to uh, transform um, sexuality and drunkenness into very high spiritual um, attainments. Um, I, I'm not uh, so wise that I would be able to say it's absolutely impossible, but um, it doesn't seem likely to me. And I, I, I certainly don't think it's a, a practice that um, many people could uh, make use of. I think teaching a um, uh, hundred people um, it just would make sense uh, to point out all the the dangers of of drinking alcohol rather than encouraging people to to try to drink alcohol without it controlling them just um seems a far you know on this very on the level of pragmatism and and just um, um the quality of life in families and in communities um, uh, I think that the, the Theravada teachings are a lot more sensible and practical, uh, to my view. But again, um, some of this sort of emotional, uh, emotionally toned language, you know, afraid of sensual desires. I mean, I don't think that um, there's anywhere in which we're taught to be um, afraid um, of desire as such, um, but we're taught to understand and we're taught to learn from our experience and um, to understand and to experience directly the, um, the nature of wholesome and unwholesome dhammas and those things which lead to peace and understanding and wisdom and those actions, those thoughts, those emotions that lead away from it. And so it's a practice of abandonment and cultivation. The um, there there is um, a famous, well-known sutta, in which a nun fell in love with Venerable Ananda. Venerable Ananda was uh, very popular with the ladies, and he um, his so the, the nun um, pretended that she was ill. Um, and asked whether Venerable Ananda would be kind enough to come and give her a teaching. So, of course, he went with other monks as attendants. He didn't go by himself. Um, and he, and he, um, he gave a teaching which was both very subtle, uh, very effective psychologically, but also in terms of, of, of the teaching that he, he gave that day. And he, was, uh, he spoke in ways in which defilement can be used to overcome defilement. Uh, so certain kinds of uh, conceit can be used um, in the, uh, on the path of practice. For instance, they're saying, well, you know, if he can do it, then I can do it, you know, which is, you know, based upon mistaken idea of self and other, and it's a sense of ego, if you like. But that beginning um, uh, certain practices with defilement, um, entails the burning up of that defilement within the practice. So, so that conceit is burned up within the practice based upon it. So, 
um, and certain kinds of, of, of cravings and so on. But uh, the point being that the, the, last, um, uh, the last point in the sutta, um, but as far as sexual desire is concerned, the Buddha taught us to cut it off completely. So this was a sort of in, in contrast to all the preceding clauses and we, uh, points in which defilement can be used to overcome defilement. And it was at that point that the nun realized that uh, Venerable Ananda um, un um, knew that she was, she was faking it, that she was in love with him. And so she, she became very um, ashamed and um, asked forgiveness, and, which, he, which he gave her. So rather than sort of uh, confronting her, you know, he, he did this very um, Buddhist way of giving a talk, which allowed her to see for herself uh, where she was deluding herself, but making very clear. And this, this is one of the uh, key texts in the Pali Canon, which, which um, uh, confront or, or, or contradict um, that one. I mean, I don't think it, it's the, you know, the whole story of Vajrayana teaching. There, there's so many different um, threads within the Vajrayana uh, tradition, so it's not so clear-cut as... Um, Vajrayana versus Theravada, but the Theravada position is um, <clears throat> is one in which um, sexual sexual desire um, is uh, undermining of the um, uh, the practice of uh, of Dhamma, um, and for a lay lay person, then restraint and um, and governance of sexual desire is uh, counseled. And for monastics, those who are, um, who are practicing in order to realize various stages of enlightenment in this lifetime, then, uh, then the complete transcendence of, of sexual desire is demanded. So, I, I mean, there are um, new cases of venerable Chokyum Trumpa, who was, you know, uh, was the, the great teacher of, uh, of the age, and and yet he, you know, he died of cirrhosis of the liver, and I think that um, uh, his alcoholism um, is inspiring to very few, even in the Vajrayana tradition. So we, we can only speak from our own uh, experience, and and. Uh, for those of you who, who have, at periods of your life, taken drugs or um, drink and, uh, drunk heavily, and now perhaps, I hope, have, have renounced that, and you compare the general level of um, awareness and clarity of mind and inner peace, um, I would suggest that it's not too difficult to see which um, the contrast there. Mm. So, could you, could you, speak? Could you repeat the question? 
Yeah, there are various uh, interpretations of the fifth precept. One is to abstain from um, alcohol together, and the other one is to um, not get drunk. Is that right? Yeah. So, um, so there's the there's the not get drunk interpretation, and there's the correct interpretation. <laughs> um, no, I, I I don't think there are any um, any grounds or any any texts anywhere that would support that um, interpretation that that uh, it's all right to drink a certain amount as long as you don't get drunk. Um, I think that's sort of wishful thinking or somebody. Um, uh, the I think if. I, I mean, you know, especially before I became a monk, I, you know, I drank not too much, uh, and I uh, smoked dope and things like that, and you know, just like most people in my generation. Um, but for me, uh, it was just when I started to meditate, it just became quite obvious to me it was a fork in the road. You have to make a choice. Um, if you either. Um, if you're sincere about developing sila, samadhi, banya, um, these two things are incompatible. I, don't, I, I just can't see that there can be any question about that. Um, so, um, seeing how difficult it is to be mindful, how incredibly tough it is, and how many things there are that... Uh, hinder and obstruct the path of practice, um, it, it would make sense, it makes sense to me, um, to at least eliminate all those elements that can be eliminated. You know, there are, there are certain things you have no control over in, uh, in your life and the uh, conditions in, in your city you live, the, the immediate environment or family conditions and so on. Um, but there are certain areas of your life which are definitely detrimental to this practice, which are within uh, your power to refrain from. Also, the um, is the again um, mentioning the silanusati practice, the recollection of sila, um, and when you hear a monk uh, talking, you read the suttas. Um, you come across the five precepts, and for someone who keeps all five precepts well, um, merely hearing the, the, those, those five precepts one by one and what they mean, and knowing that you keep those precepts, that is the basis of incredible amount of a wonderful sense of well-being and um, joy in the, in the heart. So it's not just... You know, you give up something, you know, so you're making a loss, you know, sort of a noble loss for the cause, but you're gaining something at the same time. And the, um, the, you know, as is well known with the, when once you start making um, exceptions with that fifth precept, it's like the little, and this is a tiny little hole in the dam, you know, it tends to get bigger and bigger. Um, and if you, you're taking uh, just a small amount of alcohol, um, then maybe it becomes a release uh, way of relaxation. 
and it's quite normal in, in, in society, as you know, but um, then perhaps um, you go through some more difficult period in your life when everything, you lose your job or there's some difficulty in your relationship and you're just really uh, depressed and upset and angry. And, and if your, your default means of dealing with stress and tension is uh, a drink, um, then suddenly what is, might have seemed quite a, um, a harmless habit can suddenly um, become a, quite a serious habit. You see, once you, you haven't cut off that area of escape, um, but the, and instead of learning how to deal with stress and tension and negative emotions in a, in a skillful, wise way, uh, you've taken an easy way out with, with alcohol, um, then you don't have the resources um, to deal with the more difficult uh, problems that can arise. But I, I think it, for me, um, uh, again, uh, a less um, reason or more sort of emotional argument is, is that once you have this devotion to the Buddha, Naman Sangha, you know, the Buddha um, counsel keeping the five precepts. So it's like, you know, well, uh, I'm a Buddhist. The Buddha told me not to drink, so don't drink. What's, what's, stop, you know, what, what's more to talk about? You know, it's, um, it's as simple as that. Ty's okay. Yeah. Araiku. So that's a two language question. Yes, okay. Um, Dobbin, was that? Uh, what, what is the sound of silence? Um, the sound of silence um, is a term coined by Venerable uh, Ajahn Sumato many years ago. I mean, it may have been um, found elsewhere, but in our tradition. Um, and it was a meditation technique that Ajahn Sumato developed and, and taught his, his students. Or may, it doesn't teach it so much these days, I think, but... It's, it's just that, you know, that kind of gentle sound that you can hear. Don't hear it so much in Thailand, but I find if I go to England or, or in, uh, often it's quite it's sort of background sound that you can hear um, and just using that as a, a meditation object. Hmm. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, I mean I I've never um really developed that that meditation myself, but it, it's the case um with most meditation objects that um they are not exciting objects, you know, they're, 
they are bland or very uh, subtle objects and and so that uh, danger of drowsiness um, is is there in almost every meditation topic and and that's uh, just one of the the things that we are learning about you know about how our mind works that the the more that we are tuned into the external world and stimulation um, then the more likely we are to become drowsy when we reduce the amount of stimulation so there's a it's a, a skill to be learned uh, but also to um to be recognizing that our, our intention in meditation uh, is important. Sometimes or often people meditate with this kind of vague idea of peace. I want to be peaceful. I'm meditating to be peaceful. and But people don't really know what peace means. I mean, it just means like not a lot going on. Um, so as the amount of thoughts and things reduces, there's this sense, ah, you know, and you just look, settle back in it like it's kind of a warm blanket on a cold night, you know. And, and that's when the mind gets drowsy because the... The intention is not for wakefulness and clarity of mind, but for some kind of emotional, uh, fuzzy, um, pleasant feeling. So we have to be, be aware of what, what is it really that we're, we're looking for? Because if, if that's in the back of our mind, we just want that kind of pleasant, peaceful feeling of nothing going on, disturbing us, then, then that's, um, you know, like practicing for heaven rather than practicing for uh, liberation. So it's really important to be sustaining this sense of uh, alertness and wakefulness right from the beginning, because that's that's what carries you through the meditation, even when it becomes more subtle. Is is just focusing on and and really being aware of that sense of uh, knowing and wakefulness. So that's that's your refuge in in any meditation. Um, so, um, if, if you, um, get into a habit of, of, of getting sleepy in meditation, then, then one thing to do, uh, if you like make a fresh start is, is just to, um, start meditating for a very short period. Um, say if you sat from before for 30 minutes, so go right down to about five minutes and just say, I make a, a non-drowsy five-minute meditation and then try to make a non-drowsy 10-minute meditation and then just work, work back up again. Um, but just do these very short periods where you can be confident of being able to sustain that kind of alertness and clarity of mind. Yeah. Oh, yes, right. And for special liberation, for the mom to uh, release the sila, we have four kinds of sila. One, one we call, 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 one we call,
Actually, it's um, the word, yeah, viriya, uh, viriya parami. Um, the word um, viriya, like vira, uh, in Thai we say vira burut, it's, it's like hero. So it's like heroic effort. That's what it means. It's, um, um, so there, there are four kinds of effort. You know, there's the effort to protect the mind uh, from unwholesome uh, negative um, thoughts, emotions, all the various techniques and methods we use from sense restraint, sila, and, and mindfulness, and so on, um, help to put forward this, put forth this effort. And then there's the effort to deal with unwholesome dhammas that have already arisen in the ways of dealing with them, putting forth that effort, and the effort to bring or to cultivate wholesome dhammas in the mind, and then the effort to care for and to cultivate further or to bring to those wholesome dhammas to maturity. So I think this is really good reflection, you know, in daily life where, you know, the, the opportunities for like formal meditation practice are limited. But if you think in terms of one of those four kinds of effort, you know, there's, there's never a time when you can't put some kind of effort into, into one's life in one of those, one of those areas. Um, so it's a really, uh, a really good thing to develop. And in, in fact, when, when the Buddha referring to, to his teaching, we call the Dhamma Vinaya or the, the Brahmacharya, he, he called it a Viryavada teaching. Is to say, is a teaching characterized by his, its um, emphasis on personal effort. And, uh, 
just already. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, uh, for those of you who didn't hear that, that explanation, uh, um, talking about sila, one of the ways of talking um, about uh, sila found particularly in the Visuddhi Magga commentary is to divide, talk about four kinds of of sila. So you have the the sila of precepts, whether it's the the, the precepts of the, the the monk or the five or eight precepts of the lay person, <clears throat> and then there's uh, the sila of sense restraint. Um, so um, taking care of your eyes and your ears and your nose and your tongue, not just following your eyes or whatever they want to look at or just hearing whatever uh, comes to the ears, but having a sense of, of uh, care and choosing those things which are not poisonous to the mind or things that um, leave a stain on the mind unnecessarily. And then the, the third area is, is that of... Um, Sila in, in respect to um, our requ the requisites for the monk or the things that we use in our daily life, having a sense of moderation and care and attention to how we, uh, how we relate to um, our finances, to the, our house, our possessions, to uh, technology and media, or how uh, maintaining a, a wise relationship to all these things is uh, third area of sila and the fourth is uh, the um, area of livelihood um, and choosing uh, a livelihood which is uh, at, at the very least um, does not entail breaking precepts or acting immorally or causing harm to others or to society but um, ideally um, um, a livelihood um, which we can feel a sense of pride and that we're uh, doing something which is of value to um, society or the, to our fellow fellow beings. So this is an expansion of the idea of sila, what the Venerable was trying to uh, point he's trying to make, as I understood, was that we shouldn't just see precepts in terms of not doing this, not doing that, but it's a very a much richer, more comprehensive uh, term relating to the whole way we live in the world. <clears throat>